are tracing the footsteps of Jesus through Galilee and watching him work and listen to him uh, teach the crowds and speak, feed the people, do all, do all the wonderful things that he does there. People are eagerly gathering to hear Jesus teach in the countryside as well as in the villages. They're, they're keen to hear his message and see his miracles. But as we've seen, not everybody is so enthusiastic about what Jesus is doing right now. Uh, just about everywhere he goes, it seems there are scribes and Pharisees that, uh, that, that come to oppose him in many different ways. They want to find errors in his teaching. They want to discredit his miracles. In his most recent run-in with them at the beginning of chapter 15, we saw that he left them highly offended, both in what he said to them and by what he did. And so as we begin verse 21, Jesus and his disciples have withdrawn from this place to a region called Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you remember, the last time that we read about Tyre and Sidon, Jesus was using these two cities to, uh, as a witness against two Jewish cities, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he was using Tyre and Sidon as a, as a witness uh, against Chorazin and Bethsaida for their unbelief and unrepentance. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities. They were, this was Gentile territory. This was a place of pagan worship and a land of false gods and idols. But as we read about what we've, what I'm titling a Gentile interlude, we see that there's a purpose for Jesus' visit to this place. There's more to this trip than Jesus just kind of hiding out for a few days, lying low and waiting for the the buzz, the, the, the pressure, the, the heat to die down before he goes and resumes his mission. This Gentile interlude is uh, in Jesus' Jewish mission has great significance even for us today. It's significant because Jesus, who himself says that his mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, is about to do miracles for what is likely a 100% Gentile audience. It's significant because, as Richard France puts it, it is focused on the question of how far a Gentile might expect any benefit from the Jewish Messiah. I don't know of anybody here who is Jewish. Is there anybody with Jewish uh, blood? No? Okay, so yeah, we're all Gentiles this morning. And so it plays a unique uh, a role in our experience. So Jesus and his men are in the city, and their intention is not to draw attention to themselves, uh, they're not trying to draw a crowd. Mark 7, the parallel passage to this, tells us that Jesus was in the house and didn't want anybody to know he was there. But a Canaanite woman heard he was, he was there and came and made her way to see him. Now we need to understand why the, uh, Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. If you, if you're, if you're following there in the passage there, it's in verse 23, he calls her a Canaanite woman. This is kind of an archaic term even for this day. Uh, Mark calls her a woman of Syrophoenicia. She was, he calls her a Gentile uh, and of Syrophoenicia. But Matthew is pointing out something important here as he writes to his Jewish audience. She's not just any Gentile. She belongs to the people who were Israel's ancient enemies, the Canaanites. You remember your, your Old Testament history. You've, you've, you've heard that term many, many times, the Canaanites. 
Throughout Old Testament, we read uh, their opposition and their hostility towards God's people. Uh, and, and we see that there's a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the people of Canaan. But also keep in mind that Matthew has just finished writing to the readers about defilement. As we looked at the first 20 verses last Sunday, the Jews were very concerned with spiritual purity and physical purity because it, it, it was connected to spiritual purity, but they were very concerned with remaining pure and undefiled. And the Gentiles, particularly Canaanite Gentiles, were the embodiment of physical as well as spiritual defilement. So don't just isolate this passage as we go through this together. Keep in mind that Matthew is speaking about purity and defilement as he moves into this passage. And I want you to notice as we, as we begin into, into our section here, the attitude of this particular woman. Specifically, I want to point out uh, what Jesus himself calls her great faith. And I want to show you that uh, three characteristics of this woman's great faith as, uh, as a revealed in her interaction with Christ. So notice, first of all, that it is a God-given faith. Verse 22 says, Behold, a Canaanite woman came from the region, uh, came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, for her to come to Jesus because she knew that he could heal her daughter is, is one thing. A lot of people did that. We read that in, in, in almost every story where Jesus goes into a town or village, people come and they bring those who are sick and diseased and they find in Jesus a healer. Uh, they had seen, those people had seen his power and his healing ability, or at least heard of it, and they would bring their sick and their dying to be helped by a great miracle worker. But she called him Lord. Now, that could mean a couple of different things. Uh, it might mean uh, just simply a sign of respect. It would be, it would be something that, that they would use in the way that we would use the word sir. When you're really asking a big favor of somebody, you try to, uh, use as many respectful terms as you can. And that could be what she meant by that word Lord. It could also mean the, the way that uh, she recognized him as the Lord, the same way that we recognize that Jesus is Lord. If I say Jesus is Lord, you're not thinking Jesus is sir. You're thinking Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. Hopefully you're thinking that. And it could be that that's what she was thinking there. I tend to think that that's a little bit closer to what she meant. Not just because of what I think, but because of the next thing that she calls Jesus. She calls him the son of David. Now this is a uniquely Jewish term. Uh, we first read about it in Matthew's opening lines. Matthew 1.1. Matthew writes that Jesus is the son of David and the son of of Abraham. Now we know that he was not, he would, neither Abraham or David are his biological father. Uh, and, and we would credit Joseph, I guess he's not the biological father, but we would say that he's the son of Joseph. But Matthew is describing Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham for, for a specific reason. To be the son of Abraham meant that Jesus was one of Abraham's physical descendants. Very simply, he's a Jew. But to be the son of David, meant that Jesus is the Messiah. We won't take the time that, uh, to, to spell all of that out, uh, but uh, the, the term son of David was not just something that you threw around that people adopted uh, casually. It was reserved for the Messiah. Back in Matthew 11, Jesus had healed a man who was blind and mute and demon-possessed. And if you remember the story, when the crowd saw that, they whispered among themselves, can this be the son of David? 
They were, they were saying, can this be the Messiah? Is this the promised king of the Jews? And somehow, and, and Matthew doesn't tell us how, but somehow this Canaanite woman had become familiar with Jewish teaching of a Messiah who would one day come and sit on David's throne. And she recognized that person was Jesus. Now, she's not a part of the Jewish covenant community. She doesn't have the necessary credentials as the Jews do. But she sees in Jesus the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the royal son of David. So how does a faith like this come to a woman who lives in a pagan land, who is hated and avoided by God's people? She wouldn't have been welcomed in the synagogue. She wouldn't have been able to attend the temple. She wouldn't have even shared a meal with a Jewish family who could have explained the, the truth about a one true God. Yet somehow, she had this faith. And she couldn't have figured it out on her own because faith comes from God. This was a God-given faith. Scripture teaches us over and over again that faith is not something that we come up with on our own. It's not something that we generate within ourselves. Rather, it comes from God Himself. It is His gift. Ephesians 2, in verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And Paul is explaining that every part of salvation is God's doing. The grace that, that, God, that God extends comes from God, and the faith that we need to believe comes from God. It's not our own. Paul tells us in, again in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Faith isn't something that I generate. I believe hard enough, close my eyes hard enough, and squint long enough, and faith will appear. Faith is a gift from God. This woman wasn't uniquely discerning. She wasn't uber spiritual or smart or wise that only she could put it together and recognize who Jesus is. God had graciously opened her eyes to see what so many of the Jewish leaders couldn't even see. He gave her faith to see and believe and faith to come to Jesus. But notice, secondly, that it's also a persistent faith. Her, her God-given faith drove her to Jesus, but it was not without its obstacles. I think this is fascinating as I read this story over and over this week and think about how many obstacles she overcame to come to Jesus. She came to Jesus crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. But notice what Jesus did in verse 23. The first obstacle was His ignoring her. He didn't answer her a word, it says. Paid no attention to her. In my mind's eye, I, I imagine Jesus just keeps walking by. She's crying out and He keeps walking on. But what does she do? Notice, she keeps crying out. She keeps shouting. So the disciples begged Him in verse 23, send her away for she's crying out after us. It's difficult for us to determine exactly what the disciples were hoping that Jesus would do here. It seems to be split. Uh, in, as, as far as uh, the, the opinion here, some say, well, he's saying, send her away, Jesus. She's a Gentile. She's a dog. She doesn't deserve this. And besides, we're trying to stay low here. We don't need attention. And she's shouting, and, and, and she's going to give us away. 
But then others would say that she is, they're, that they're asking Jesus, just give her what she wants so she'll go away. She's really starting to get annoying. Just, they're shouting, and I, and I, and I, and I chuckle as I read this because she's crying out for Jesus. But the disciples say, she's shouting at us. Like they've kind of attached themselves to some great importance. Jesus, she just won't leave us alone. And I wonder if Jesus is thinking, she's not crying out for you guys. She's crying out after the son of David. Not Peter, not James, not John. But Jesus answered, regardless of how, how they intended it, Jesus answered in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, he said this to his disciples, but I'm guessing it was within the earshot of the woman. He says, my mission is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not uh, Jews, not Gentiles. And it was the Father's plan for the Messiah to come first to the Jews. And Jesus was pleased to obey the Father's will. And we know that salvation has been brought to the Gentile world, but it started, and at this time, it was still with the Jews. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In his sermon in Acts 3, Peter writes, uh, or Peter says to the, to the Jews there, he says, God, having raised up His servant and sent Him to you first to bless you. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus never helped Gentiles. We've already read about the centurion in Matthew 8. Jesus helped the centurion's servant. And we know about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She was half Jew and half Gentile. And uh, he uh, helped her and, and, and uh, gave her faith. But this woman came to him needing help, and Jesus made very clear his earthly mission was first to the Jews. But even these words didn't stop her. She kept on. Look at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. She fell down at his feet. She worshipped him and said, Lord, help me. This is a desperate woman. This is a woman who knows that Jesus is her only hope. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, and she wasn't a physical descendant of Abraham, but she needed help. And Jesus was the only one who could help her. For her, it was Jesus or bust. She overcame every obstacle and threw herself at Jesus' feet, pleading for mercy. But what comes next is actually very confusing and honestly very startling, especially because it comes from the lips of Jesus. Jesus, the friend of sinners, uncharacteristically tells this woman in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jews used this word dog as an insult to, to the Gentiles. It was a derogatory term. Jews were considered unclean and defiled people. And Jesus was saying that to give the children's food to the dogs was not right to do. The children's food was for the children, Israel, not for the dogs, the Gentiles. And to hear these words come from Jesus, it, it baffles many people. It concerns us. That's not nice, Jesus. That's not kind. And that's not the same Jesus that we read about in literally every other place in Scripture. 
And to hear these words, as, as, as I said, has confused many people, but I, I think that this kind of language was expected by the Gentiles. When the Gentile had a conversation with the Jews, they knew that this was how it was going to be. And, and a lot of people have attempted to understand and explain what Jesus meant here. But I think that the woman's response tells us that she understood. Whether or not we get the full weight of what Jesus was saying here, I think the woman did. Because she doesn't argue. She doesn't, she's not even surprised by this. Maybe there was a gap of time. Maybe the woman processed this and thought about it. But as we read it, it just seems to be the very next statement that, that comes out of her mouth. She didn't argue it. Instead, she humbly responded to Jesus by acknowledging her unworthiness. In fact, she accepts the label, dog, but asks again. She has persistent faith. Look at verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. See, I think that Jesus was reminding her of God's planned order. The Jews first and then the Gentiles. And the issue wasn't one of importance, that the Jews are more important than the Gentiles, but it was one of sequence. The Jews first and then the Gentiles. He wasn't saying that she didn't deserve it, but that the children's food belonged to the children. And the blessings of Israel were for Israel. But with persistent faith, she responds so beautifully here that although the children's food is given to the children, the dogs are still able to catch the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You remember how sloppy those babies were? Even kids and teenagers and, and adult men? How are, as, a, as you can tell, who sat where at the dinner table based on how much food is on the uh, on the placemat and on the floor and under the chair. Our, we have a dog who sits underneath our table when we eat because he knows someone is going to drop something and when they do, I'm going to be there to get it. We don't intend to feed the dog like this, but he is there because he knows something is going to happen. Blessings that God gives were for Israel, but the dogs could still benefit. They can benefit from residual or overflowing blessings. Seeking a crumb, as she calls it, wouldn't break God's determined order, but it would be enough to help her. All she needed was a crumb. That's persistent faith. And notice thirdly that she has a rewarded faith. Verse 28 says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now there are only two times in the book of Matthew when someone's faith is commended by Jesus. First is in Matthew 8 with the centurion. And then the second time was this one with this woman. Jesus says to her, your faith is great. It will be done as you desire. And just like with the centurion, who by the way, both are Gentiles. I think that's that's uh, insignificant. Just like with the centurion's servant, the woman's daughter was healed at that very moment without ever being there. And the woman's great faith had enabled her to overcome obstacles. It was tested and proven strong and true. Why? Well, because God gave it to her. Because it wasn't her own. 
Because by faith she came to Jesus and persisted and persevered and was rewarded with the very thing she needed. Although Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, He will not refuse anyone, Jew or Gentile, who comes to Him. He says in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And He says that because a few verses later He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father gives faith to come. If the Father draws someone, Christ will not turn them away. Now the second event of this trip is, is one that is remarkably similar to the, to the to event that we already read about in chapter 14. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because it's very similar uh, to what we've already read. But Jesus leaves this place with this with, where the woman is, and he, he walks along the sea and up the mountain. Mark 7.31 tells us that this is the region known as the Decapolis. Uh, it means the region of ten cities. And it was predominantly Gentile. And there he sits down, and verse 30 says that great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. What's interesting is that this time we find no objection from Christ. There's no obstacle in the way of those who come to Jesus for help. He simply heals them. And for three days, he's with them on the mountain, healing them, probably teaching them. And Matthew tells us that when they saw the awesome power of God through the miracles of Jesus, verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. But then at the end of three days, Jesus turns to His disciples and says in verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. You say, well, that sounds a little bit familiar. You're right. Just a chapter ago, we read about Jesus having compassion on another group of people and doing the exact same thing here. It's a nearly identical story. Only then it was 5,000 Jews. This time it's 4,000 Gentiles. And I can't help but think that Jesus in calling His disciples over and presenting the situation in the way that He did is testing them. He's done this once before. And we don't know how long ago these two stories are, how, how much time has happened between these two stories. For us, it seems like it's happened yesterday. You know, that we read it just a chapter ago. I read it yesterday in my devotions. I'm reading this one today. Guys, you certainly cannot have forgotten such a great miracle. But it's time for a pop quiz. How are we going to do this? How are we going to feed all these people, guys? I really have compassion for these poor folks. They've been with me three days. They haven't had anything to eat anymore. If I send them away like this, they're not even going to make it home. They'll faint in the road. And I can just see Jesus looking at His men, waiting for the light to come on. Waiting for them to get it. So what are we going to do, guys? But for whatever reason, the disciples don't get it. In fact, more often than not, the disciples don't get it. In fact, more often than not, Christians today don't get it. We don't pick up on what Jesus is doing in us and around us. We focus on our lack instead of in Jesus' abundant supply. We focus on our resources instead of our Savior. We're too concerned with having all of the right materials in place 
so that Jesus can bless it, when in reality, He can do anything with just a little bit. He can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He can feed 4,000 with seven and a few fish. He created the whole world with literally nothing. He created everything with nothing. God is not limited by our lack of resources. But how often do we forget that? As we go day to day and we're faced with an apparent lack of funds, a lack of answers, a lack of options, we forget that God is not limited by those things like we are. And the disciples say to him in verse 33, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus, this is a wilderness. There's no place open this late. We're not going to get any way, no, no way, no how, can we feed all these people. But look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And he took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Megiddo. And just like that, the story's over. There's so much detail, and then it's done. Jesus and his men get back in the boat, head back into Jewish territory to resume their mission. So what happened here? What's the purpose of this visit? The way I see it, what might have been thought to be a Gentile interlude, a short little getaway from rising Jewish hostility, was actually a prelude to the blessing that all nations would enjoy through the Jewish Messiah. A Dutch theologian named Herman Ritterboss once wrote, the disciples were given another lesson that Christ's gift can provide in abundance, even where this might be least expected, in a desolate place and among people who did not belong to God's covenant. Or as Blomberg wrote, Jesus thus offers to the whole world exactly what he first offered to Israel. See, although Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, was to the Jewish nation, he would soon commission these very same disciples and his church to take the gospel message to every tribe and nation. They would spread the message of hope in a Jewish Messiah throughout the whole world. They would share the news of the son of David, the king of Israel, and the light for all the nations. Listen to Isaiah 49.6, and this is part of what's called the servant songs, as uh, there's, there's uh, several of them uh, in the final passages of, of, of Isaiah. And in part of the second song is Isaiah 49 and verse 6, and God tells His servant Messiah, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations." that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, Jesus came to His own. His own did not receive Him. He was rejected and crucified. 
buried in a tomb. He rose from the grave and today sits at the right hand of the throne of God and he offers salvation to all who believe in his name. To all who will come to him in humble, repentant faith. To all who trust in him alone for salvation. And now, because of what Jesus did for both the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Because of Christ's sacrifice, that wall of separation and division was torn down both between God and man, but also between Jew and Gentile. The law teaches that we're all defiled. No one is inherently clean before God, but Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean, whether he is a first century Jew or a 21st century Gentile. He is compassionate to all who come to him. He blesses great God-given faith even from outsiders. Because the truth is, as sinners, we're all outsiders. Paul writes, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The mission of Jesus began with the Jews and spilled over into the Gentile world, providing the blessings of faith and salvation for all who come to Him. The sovereign plan of God draws men and women, boys and girls, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. gives them saving faith to believe in Him, to come to Him, and to trust Him for both their physical and their spiritual needs. We are Gentiles. Because of a Jewish Messiah, we are children of the Father. We are sons of Abraham. Because of anything good in ourselves, but because we have a good God. 